Okay, I discovered today why I really like to go out of town to these conferences because it's to, to go to go to a conference like that all day and then have them uh, go late on my panel discussion. I, we, they quit 45 minutes ago. So then Taylor and I had to jump in the car. Taylor doesn't jump real well. Y'all, make sure you say hi to Taylor Williams. Taylor's been here since got in Tuesday night. He was at class Tuesday night and uh, stayed with us, and he and I have gone to the uh, Council for Dispensational Hermeneutics a study group over meeting at the College of Biblical Studies the last um, uh, the last few days, yesterday and today, and so I'm trying to figure out where I am. I, I, that's, I'm running late getting here. I got here like five minutes ago, and so I'm just still trying to get things set up. So just bear with me a minute. But it was a, it was a good conference. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it in just a minute, if I can see what I've got here, wherever I am. There we go. That may be it. Maybe not. Maybe not. Okay. Announcements. Remember the picnic. Mike Smith was there. We may, yeah, we, we, we may need to recouch our, the, the terms of our volleyball game. It, we're going to have the Golden Championship or the Golden Years Championship or something because his congregation's a little bit more senior than ours. And he's having trouble fielding a team, so we may win by default. Well, maybe I need to start trash talking him a little more. But uh, anyway, they've got uh, probably about 25 or people or more who uh, uh, are going to come to the uh, picnic, join us at the picnic. So that's going to be uh, going to be good. That's a week from this coming Saturday. Today's Thursday, so that's like what nine days from now. And I uh, hope all of you can make it out for, for the picnic. I think that's the only other, uh, si- the only significant announcement this evening. Is that right? Uh, hmm? Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, Randy Price will be speaking at Sugarland Bible Church this Saturday and Sunday. And uh, Andy Woods and he teaches some on Saturday. So the, all that will be on the Internet as well. But I encourage you to go to that. Especially, it'd be really interesting. I wish I could just wish I could be there, because Randy is going to talk about uh, their expedition up to up on Mount Ararat this summer. And uh, as I pointed out when I made this announcement, I think a week or two ago, uh, last week I believe it was Bob Guerra, who is the chairman of the board for Dean Bible Ministries down in the valley. Um, who lives down in the valley was uh, had a man in his car. He's Bob's a lawyer, so it probably had something to do with that. Uh, who was a uh, uh, works with underground radar, ground penetrating radar material, and has been with Randy to uh, Ararat three times, helping to pierce this ice flow. And to see, there's something there. It's significant. Has significant anomalies there. And they were able to core down this year. In the past, they've had problems due to getting good labor because the local Kurds steal the clothes, sell the clothes, come back up there 15,000 feet in the snow in sandals, barefoot, and shorts and T-shirts because all the expensive uh, mountain climbing gear they've sold to get money. I mean, it's just very difficult, very challenging. Of course, it's all part of spiritual warfare, the angelic conflict. But this year, Randy took the football team from Liberty University with him. So they would have muscle, dependable muscle, to do some of the hard labor. So, uh, But from what this guy said, he wasn't free to tell me that they did uh, core down through the ice and they found some significant things. So it uh, be interesting to see what Randy uh, communicates uh, on Saturday. Let's have a few moments of silent prayer before we get started this evening, and uh, just to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the Word, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, we are grateful to be here, grateful that we can study your word, grateful that we have your word before us in in a very good translations that reflect very well the original languages, the original intent of your word. Father, we know that even in translation there are uh, problems and we can surmount those, but we understand the truth of your word, we understand your grace, we understand your faithfulness, and we understand even from just the English text, the remarkable, remarkable plan that you have for us, the spiritual life you have prepared for us, and the distinctive aspects of this spiritual life which we have in this church age. Father, we are thankful for groups like the Dispensational Hermeneutic Study Group, the Pre-Trib Study Group, other groups that uh, provide in-depth, ongoing training for pastors and professors and theologians to uh, challenge one another in their understanding of the Word and to probe deeply into its meaning and to help and encourage one another in teaching the truth of your Word. Father, we're thankful that we're here, that we have the truth of your Word here, and that we have the understandings and the opportunities that we have that are so remarkable in this generation and this era. We pray that we would not take that lightly. And Father, we pray that as we study tonight that you would give us greater insight and clarity into your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to start off just briefly telling you a little bit about the conference. I'm not going to go into it in uh, tremendous detail. This was started about five years ago, I believe, as an outreach ministry, academic outreach ministry of the uh, Baptist Bible Seminary, which is a GARB, that's a Greater Association of Regular Baptist, uh, GARB school in uh, Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. I, I think I saw a few furrowed brows going, what is GARB? The Northern Baptists kicked the Southern Baptists out in the early 1850s because they couldn't support missionaries or pastors or any kind of ministry by anybody who might have a slave. All the denominations in the United States split between North and South between the late 1840s and 1860, and then gradually over time in the 19th century they they tended to merge back. Northern Baptists and Southern Baptists did not. The Northern Baptist Church basically went liberal, starting in the 1890s from in what was known as a fundamentalist modernist controversy in the 18 I mean in the 19 late 20s and 30s about every 3 years or so another group of conservative and I mean that lowercase c conservative fundamentalists in the classic sense of the word that is they believed in the infallibility and errancy of scripture deity of Christ virgin birth miracles second, literal second coming of Christ conservatives within the uh, northern baptist denomination would get fed up with their liberalism and leave uh, one of the groups that left in the mid 30s was a group known as the that came to be known as the CBA conservative baptist Association, and one of the three men who started that was Dr. Richard Beale, who had a daughter named Betty Beale, who married a man named Bob Theme. Another conservative group that split off of the conservative, I mean, that split off of the Northern Baptists were the Regular Baptists. They became known as the uh, G, the Greater Association of Regular Baptists. Uh, some of us who worked at Camp Isle back in the 60s and early 70s met a few people from a school called Grand Rapids School of the Bible and Music, and they were a GARB school. And they they were as legalistic as, as Bob Jones. You couldn't watch TV or go to movies or any kind of thing like that, and they'd come down and work at, te- work at this Christian camp in Texas with a bunch of grace-oriented uh, Christians down here, and they were just like, had their, they would walk around the first couple of weeks with their eyes wide open. They just couldn't believe these Christians who, when they got a night off, they'd go into town and go to a movie. And they wouldn't even think that there could be anything wrong with it. And they'd be pretty much converted to grace by the end of the summer, and then they'd have to go back up north, and it was a real rude awakening for them. Well, they're not quite that legalistic anymore. And uh, Bible Baptist Seminary is an excellent school. 
and the president of the seminary or the dean, academic dean of the seminary is a classmate of mine from Dallas Seminary, Mike Stallard, who's very committed to dispensationalism, and the school's very committed to dispensationalism. And so they started this academic study group bringing together top scholars in, and, and some pastors uh, who were committed to traditional dispensational theology to meet together on an annual basis to further probe, develop, understand critical issues within dispensational theology. And I went to Clark Summit last year, and this year they were meeting at the College of Biblical Studies. Next year they'll be back in Clark Summit. Each year they pick a little bit of different topic. This year the topic was on dispensationalism and biblical preaching. The first session we had yesterday morning had two main uh, presenters, Dr. Rod Decker, who teaches at, at the uh, school up there, and Christopher Cohn, Dr. Christopher Cohn, who is the now the president of Tyndale Seminary in, in Fort Worth. And their topics were complementary, although they didn't agree on every detail. Uh, Rod, Dr. Decker, spoke on preaching in the biblical languages and, the, and emphasized the importance of the languages for the pastor, that a pastor must know the original languages. Uh, Chris spoke on integrating exegesis and exposition, and uh, he subtitled it Preaching and Teaching for Spiritual Independence. Most of us in this group would have a, a lot more sympathy for what Chris said in things uh, uh, Dr. Decker, although I appreciate a lot of his scholarship, he is unfortunately, I believe, like too many great scholars, and I know of some men like this in Houston that are good academicians, and when they're in a seminary or academic classroom, they are as technical and as detailed in the languages as possible, but in a question, in a response to a question someone, <clears throat> someone asked Dr. Decker, he made the statement, well, I've been a past, in the pastoral ministry for 30 years, and I don't think I've referred to Greek or Hebrew in the pulpit more than 10 times, and which I continue to challenge him on. But he, when it came to dealing with the issue of biblical, the importance of knowing the languages, he had many good things in his paper. And one of the things I appreciate, I thought I would read to you some excerpts from it, was that he had a two-and-a-half-page Ten-point typeface uh, quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther initiated the Protestant Reformation in 1517, and uh, uh, Luther, like every other pastor who has a sin nature, did not get everything right. In fact, dear old Martin didn't get a lot of things right. But he did get two things right. One was sola scriptura, the scripture alone, and sola fide, by faith alone. Those were the Latin terms that became, they were two of the five phrases that became sort of uh, marching banners for the Protestant Reformation. Luther is moving away from Roman Catholicism, and he had been a, an Augustinian monk before he came to an understanding of the gospel and his study of of uh, Romans, and so he doesn't move very far, but he moves far enough to cross the line to understand the gospel of grace, but he is so embattled over just the one doctrine of justification by faith alone, he doesn't get have time to explore all of the other doctrines of Scripture that gradually develop through the next century. But he said some important things about the preparation of a pastor. He said, In proportion, then, as we value the gospel, let us zealously hold to the languages. That needs to be emblazoned over the door of every seminary in the world today because they, they lose it. They, 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 somehow they fail to understand how that really relates to what you do and say in the pulpit says, let us zealously hold to the language, for it was not without purpose that God caused his scriptures to be set down in these two languages alone, the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New in Greek. Now, if God did not despise them, 
but chose them above all others for his word, then we ought to ought to honor them above all others. What a great statement that God didn't choose Hebrew and Greek. I mean, the Bible's not written in Hebrew and Greek originally just because, well, you know, that's just the way it was. It just happened that way. But God had, God oversees the process, and there was a reason for that. God chose Hebrew and Greek to be the languages used as the best vehicles to communicate the content that's in those two testaments. And if God deemed it important to, know, to communicate originally in those two languages, then we should honor that and should know that. It was just a footnote in this, in, in our country, probably up until the early 1800s, it would be typical that in a congregation of the size of ours uh, on, on a Sunday morning that there would be at least eight or ten or twelve men in the congregation who could follow along in the Greek text, had great, had facility, knew Greek, because Greek and Hebrew and Latin were all taught in the, uh, in the school classroom. And so they grew up studying uh, these languages and they could read it. And today we do well if we find a pastor who with computer aids can deal with Greek, not to mention Hebrew. Luther went on to say, let us be sure of this. We will not long preserve the gospel. Listen to that. We will not long preserve the gospel without the languages. What a profound insight. The languages are the sheath in which this sword of the Spirit is contained. They are the casket in which this jewel is enshrined. If through our neglect we let the languages go, which God forbid, we shall not only lose the gospel, but the time will come when we shall be unable either to speak or write a correct Latin or German or English. Yes, you say, but many of the fathers were saved and even became teachers without the languages. That is true, but how do you account for the fact that they so often erred in the Scriptures? How often does not St. Augustine err in the Psalms and in his other expositions, and Hilary too? In fact, all those who have undertaken to expound Scripture without a knowledge of the languages. Even though what they said about a subject at times was perfectly true, they were never quite sure whether it was really present there in the text whereby their interpretation they thought to find. When our faith is thus held up to ridicule, where does the fault lie? It lies in our ignorance of the languages, and there is no other way out than to learn the languages. He goes on to say later on, uh, a simple preacher, it is true, has so many clear passages and texts available through translations that he can know and teach Christ, lead a holy life, and preach to others. But when it comes to interpreting Scripture and working with it on your own and disputing with those who cite it incorrectly, and that should go to every single pastor. We have too many pastors who think they can really do an adequate job in the pulpit without knowing the languages. And what he is saying is you may be able to get so far without the languages, but when it comes to interpreting Scripture, working with it on your own, or disputing with those who cite it incorrectly, he is unequal to the task that cannot be done without the languages. He says, since it becomes Christians then to make good use of the Holy Scriptures as their one and only book, and it is a sin and a shame not to know our own book or to understand the speech and words of our God, it is still a greater sin and loss that we do not study languages, especially in these days when God is offering and giving us men and books and every facility and inducement to this study. This was in 1520 or so. They didn't have computers. They just discovered the printing press about 50 or 60 years earlier. And so because of that, they have access to tools, hard print books, to study the languages. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about logos and accordance and Bible works and all those other tools today, so get that out of your head. We live in an age that's gone way beyond that, and yet we have the more that's available to us, the less we emphasize it and the less that we use. He goes on to say, The preacher or teacher can expound the Bible from beginning to end as he pleases, accurately or inaccurately. If there is no one there, that's talking about in the congregation, people in the congregation knowing the languages. 
They can teach whatever they please if there is no one there to judge whether he is doing it right or wrong. But in order to judge, one must have a knowledge of the languages. It cannot be done in any other way. Therefore, although faith in the gospel may indeed be proclaimed by simple preachers without a knowledge of languages, such preaching is flat and tame. People finally become weary and bored with it, and it falls to the ground. But where the preacher is versed in the languages, there is freshness and vigor in his preaching. Scripture is treated in its entirety, and faith finds itself constantly renewed by a continual variety of words and illustrations. Hence, he goes on to say, and I'm going to skip, it's two pages of this, so I'm not going to read everything. He goes on to say a little later on, For there is great danger in speaking of things of God in a different manner and in different terms than God himself employs. In short, there may, they may lead saintly lives and teach sacred things among themselves, but so long as they remain without the languages, they cannot but lack what all the rest lack, namely the ability to treat Scripture with certainty and thoroughness and to be useful to other nations. Because they could do this but will not, they have to figure out for themselves how they will answer for it to God. Good words from 500 years ago. Now I've got to get back to another document I was looking at. Okay, pull that up. All right, let's get into our study in Romans tonight. I don't have, um, really, I actually don't have a slide presentation, so what I'm going to do is just uh, black out the screen. And I want to take you to some passages where we ended last time for understanding the relationship of the Christian to the law. What was interesting was in our in our study uh, today, uh, this morning we had a session on hermeneutics, on interpret the principles of hermeneutics as it applies to uh, the Old Testament and the New. And the three speakers were uh, uh, Joe Parles, who's the academic dean over there at the uh, at College of Biblical Studies, and he did a, he did a good job, but he was up against two oldie moldy goldies. Bob Thomas, who's the best, and Elliot Johnson, who's just, you know, a half of a one-thousandth of a decimal point short of Bob Thomas. They, that's only because he's younger. And um, he wasn't there tonight. I was going to, I was going to, when we introduced ourselves in the panel, I was going to say that <clears throat> I was going to start off by saying, compared to the other guys on the panel, I was older than, than dirt. But considering that Elliot was there, I was the dirt, but he was older than me because he was my professor. Elliot Johnson is the uh, hermeneutics expert at Dallas Seminary, whereas Bob Thomas, before he retired, was the hermeneutics guy at at Master Seminary, and and they they have different perspectives and they don't always agree, and I'm not always sure what the difference is because they're slicing the bologna very very thin, but it's significant, and sometimes it's not always. It's not always as clear, and I really appreciated some things that Elliot had in his paper. Not that I didn't appreciate Bob Thomas's paper. It was excellent, but Elliot was dealing with a number of passages like Romans 6.15 and Romans 7 and uh, Galatians 3, which are passages that we're in right now. So he was, he was scratching where I was itching, and he had some interesting things to say, which I'll, I will uh, read as we go through these passages. But in Romans 7, Paul is talking about the fact that we are dead to the law. Not that the law is dead, but that we are dead to the law. In other words, the law no longer has a power or authority over us. And this is so foundational for us to understand. I I hope that you understand how important it is to, to get to this. This isn't just abstract doctrine. When you go to uh, many, many, if not most churches in this country, the pastors do not know how to distinguish between Old Testament teaching and New Testament teaching to begin with. And beyond that, they don't understand what has really happened in terms of the cross and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
They may understand it to a degree, but as I've pointed out in the last few weeks in our lesson, what, what Paul says here in verses in 6, 14, and 15, that we are, that sin shall not have dominion over us because we're dead, because we're dead to the sin nature. It's still alive. It's still there. But we're dead to the sin nature. That's Romans 6. Romans 7 is we're dead to the law. Those are still there. That's why we have a problem with legalists on the one hand and people who are licentious on the other hand. But he's making this statement there that sin shall not have dominion over us because we're not under law. We're under grace. And as I pointed out when we hit that passage a couple of weeks ago, that what he is saying there is there has been a dispensational shift. There has been a change in the way God relates to human beings because of what happened at the cross. And because of what happened at the cross, there is something radically different that happens to the believer since the day of Pentecost, to the church-age Christian, that never happened to somebody before that day of Pentecost. And on the, the day that we believe Jesus died for our sins, when at that instant, when God the Son, Jesus, uses God the Holy Spirit to cleanse us, to identify us positionally with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That, that doctrine we call positional truth, which means that, this, that we're dead to the sin nature. Because of that, we're free from the, sin, the power and dominion of the sin nature. That's Romans 6. That never happened before 33 A.D. Never. David didn't have that happen to him. Saul in the Old Testament didn't, Saul, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Abraham, Moses, name your hero. None of them had that happen to them. And that's why the lesson we get from the Old Testament is that the law really doesn't work because Israel's under the law, but what happens? Failure after failure after failure. There are a few bright lights. There are times when they step to the plate and they go be up above and beyond their, their fallen natures. That's why they're heroes. That's why they're listed in, in, in Hebrews 11. What make, I want to talk a minute about heroes. I've been reflecting on this the last few weeks because of something, some sent, just one sentence I heard on a talk radio show, but I think it was accurate. We live in an era since the 50s and 60s where a certain segment of our intelligentsia and academicians have been in full mode to destroy American heroes, to assault the founding fathers uh, and attack them. And this is, this is to be expected from a liberal. Why? Because as Thomas Sowell so clearly points out in his book, Conflict of Vision, ultimately what makes the difference between a person who looks at the world with a, and, and concludes to liberal, comes to liberal conclusions and a person who looks at the world and comes to conservative conclusions is that the liberal thinks that man is basically good and improvable and that conservatives believe that man is basically evil. Not that he can't do good things, but that his nature is basically evil and so he needs to be, he, he needs to be controlled. Even government must be controlled by law, otherwise evil will have its day and either the people will will become evil or the government will become evil but law is what controls evil and controls uh controls the the, the sin nature now if you're a liberal and you believe everybody's basically good then you're going to look at Thomas Jefferson or George Washington or Benjamin Franklin or any human hero and you're going to say they're not all that heroic look at all the things they did that were wrong Look at the sins in their life. Look at their moral failures. These guys, and you just tear them down because your assumption is everybody's basically good and they did bad things. So how can you say they're a hero? The reason they're a hero is because they're a corrupt, fallen sinner. And they had moments where they rose above their nature and they lived and operated above their sin nature. And that's what made them heroes. They didn't stay there the whole time. And you look at those heroes in Hebrews 11. Those men that are listed there all had tremendous spiritual failings. Every single one of them from, from Abraham to, to Moses to Isaac to Joseph, 
all the way through to Gideon and Jephthah and, and the judges and David, they all had great moral failures. That's to be expected. They were fallen sinners. And we know from Romans 6 that they didn't have a, uh, they, they, they didn't have a sin nature that's power was broken by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So it's just amazing that, that they rose to the level that they did, but they rose above their natural, their sin nature inclination, and they did what God wanted them to do. They obeyed God, and they did it maybe just for a moment, just for a day, just for a week, but there was an instant or more when they were above their nature. That's what made them heroes. Heroes are people who rise above their natural sinful inclinations. And it may not be a lot, but that's what's heroic. Everybody, When everybody just goes along and does what their sin nature leads them to do, then they're just being normal. When, when our, the founding fathers or any other great hero in American history failed, uh, that's only to be expected because they were fallen sinners. What's not expected are for them to to rise to the level of the heroics of the founding fathers or the great military leaders that we had or other civic leaders that we had in the founding of this. That was exceptional. And and that's what makes a person a hero. And and what we see here in, in Romans is this great, clear exposition of the fact that we have to recognize that we're sinners. You're married to a sinner. Whether I'm talking to the wife or the husband, that person that you love is a lousy, corrupt sinner, and you need to be realistic about that, that they're going to fail and fail miserably sometimes or, depending on the person, many times. That's what you should expect, not in a way that excuses it, but that's because they're just a sinner, just like you. Guess what? You're going to fail too many times. And the grace of God is that at times we won't. And maybe because of the word of God, maybe there'll be few times of, of, of significant failure. But that's the reality. And that's why we have to forgive one another in marriage is because that other person's not any better or worse than we are. Their sin, whatever it is, their failures in the marriage, whatever it may be, and we all have them on either side, is just to be expected by from a sinner. But what's exceptional is that we rise above that because we love that person. That's what makes it significant. And we can do that in the church age because of what happened at salvation when we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's revolutionary. That had never happened in 4,000 years of human history. And all of a sudden on the day of Pentecost and from that day to now in the last 2,000 years, When somebody trusts in Christ, the power and dominion and tyranny of their sin nature is ended. If it operates fully in their life, it's only because they chose to let it happen. It's only because you choose to let it happen and I choose to let it happen. It's our responsibility. We put ourselves back under that tyranny, but the tyranny is broken for the first time in history. That is mind-boggling. And because of that, the law is in it because the law never handled it. The Mosaic law didn't handle it. The Mosaic law was a complete failure. Look at what it produced in terms of, uh, of the history of Israel and the bondage and the failures in, in Israel. There had to be something different. And what was different was this shift from law to grace. Doesn't mean there wasn't grace in the Old Testament. Doesn't mean there's not law in the, in, they're not uh, mandates, absolutes ethical, moral, spiritual absolutes in the New Testament, but that that we're going to emphasize truth, as Elliot pointed out today, but with grace because we recognize that we're all fallen and we have to deal with each other in grace. And that's what makes for successful relationships in any area is because we deal with one another in grace and, and humility. And so in this early transitional period in the early part of the church age, especially the Jewish believers were wrestling with this whole idea of what is the role of the Mosaic law now to believers. And I looked last time, we looked at Acts 15 in terms of the Jerusalem council. 
And there I pointed out that the issue there wasn't just the issue of whether or not Gentile, male Gentile believers should be circumcised, but really the whole issue of the role of the law in their life. And as the apostles met and worked through the issues, understanding God's call to Peter to take the gospel to the Gentiles and what God had done through Peter, I mean, through Paul and through Barnabas in that first missionary journey and uh, how God used them to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, they realized that there was no longer a legal obligation, that is an obligation to the Mosaic law, placed upon believers in the church age. However, there were problems of offending Jews because of their their belief in the law. And this is what we see in that Acts 15 passage is just one example of many of how uh, the weaker, bro- the, 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 the more mature brother should, should be sensitive and aware of problems with a weaker brother. That's, that's all that is. And I read the issues last week where they recommended that they should uh, avoid meat sacrifice to idols and uh, adultery and, and immorality. Why? Because that offended the Jews, not because it was not spiritual, and not because they couldn't grow or be saved if they did those things, but simply to not offend the Jews because of their background. That's the basic uh, basic argument that, that's there, that the law as a rule of life, as a basis for any uh, sanctification had ended, and neither Jew nor Greek was under it anymore. However, the moral laws, the eternal spiritual laws that the Mosaic law reflected uh, were... Many of those were still in in effect. Now, from there, I, I, I want to look at now is a second pa- important passage in the in the Old Testament. De- I mean, in the New Testament, dealing with the relationship of law to the believer, and that's in Galatians. In Galatians, Galatians is the uh, between Second Corinthians and Ephesians, and Galatians is the first epistle that Paul wrote. It's the first epistle that Paul wrote, and it is one of my favorite favorite epistles because of just the simplicity of it, the way it's laid out. The first two chapters focus on the fact that they distorted grace in the gospel, and the remaining chapters deal with the fact that they distorted grace in sanctification. In the first chapter, Paul just with, doesn't mince words. He just just basically uh, uh, assaults them very strongly, that, telling them that they've deserted the gospel of the grace of Christ for a different kind of gospel, not the one he preached, but one that was taught by the Judaizers, that it's okay to believe in Jesus as a Messiah, but he's not enough. You also have to follow the precepts of the law. It It was grace plus something, and whenever you add anything to grace, you destroy grace. And so it was another gospel, and not the same kind of gospel. The emphasis of the Greek word there is it's a heteros gospel, a gospel of a of a different of a different kind that's where we get the word heterosexual you have a relationship with someone who is a different sex uh, not a homosexual which is somebody of the same sex so you have two different greek words for other heteros which means another of a different kind and uh, alos which is another of the same kind this is heteros so they desert to a different kind uh, kind of gospel. And so the issue in chapters 1 and 2 really relates to grace and the gospel itself of justification by faith alone. That's why you have the great passages like uh, <clears throat> verse, uh, Colossians 2, uh, 2.16, that n- knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Notice how he completely juxtaposes faith in Christ with the works of the law. Works of the law cannot get you the kind of righteousness that God requires. He expands on all of this in Romans 3 and 4. He goes on to say in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. See, that relates to Romans 6. He's making a transition here at the end of chapter 2 
to talking about sanctification. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. What, does he have a multiple personality syndrome? No, what he means by that is that the old man is dead. It's not me, the unregenerate person I once was who lives, but Christ who lives in me. We have been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That power of the sin nature is broken. We are, we are now a new creature in Christ so that we live on the basis of this new empowerment. Christ lives in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. He brings the Holy Spirit in in just a few verses. And he says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. See, it's still a spiritual life is still by grace through faith. It's not on the basis of works. Does that mean that there aren't things that we have to do? There aren't mandates to follow? No. But we follow those mandates by faith. God said, do this, and we say, I believe it, so I'm going to do it. You fulfill the mandate by faith. That's not legalism. It's only legalism if you think that's what gets you credit with God or if you think that that you can lose your salvation if you don't do it or something like that. And he says, the life I now live in the flesh, that is in this corporeal body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Righteousness doesn't come through the law either as justification righteousness, that is imputed righteousness, or experiential righteousness. doesn't come through the law. Then he changes his focus in chapter 3. Chapter 3 through 6 focuses on the spiritual life. And it's great, fabulous the way he, he focuses our attention on this. He comes, look at verse 2. He says, the only thing I want to learn from you is did you receive the Spirit? When did you receive the Spirit? At salvation. So did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Well, based on what he just said in chapters 1 and 2, we receive the Spirit not because of what we did, not from following the law, not through the ritual, but by faith alone in Christ alone. That's how we receive the Spirit. And then he says in verse 3, are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit, that beginning occurred at regeneration when we're identified with Christ in the death, burial, and resurrection, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and as a result, we're indwelt by the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being, and the word is translated perfect, but it's the word uh, teleao, the verb, are you now being completed or matured by the flesh, by doing the law? I mean, you got saved by faith, but after that you grow by the law? No. Now, what's important about this question is, and you should circle these words, spirit, perfect, and flesh. Those three words. The next time those three words show up is in Galatians 5.16. Everything between this verse and Galatians 5.16, which says, that we are to walk by means of the, what? Spirit. And you will not fulfill, that's teleao, you will not perfect the works of the flesh, the sin nature. Everything between verse 3 and 5.16 is to help us understand why he says what he says in 5.16. Talk about an Anacoluthan going down a rabbit trail. That's a, what, three-chapter rabbit trail. But it's important to understand what he says so that we can understand the command to walk by means of the Spirit. If you just run out and start saying, i got to walk by means of the Spirit, you're going to fall flat on your face because we have to, just as Romans 6 says, we have to understand the baptism by the Spirit. We have to understand these, all these things that are going on in between. And it has to, the most important thing to understand is what he says in verse chapter 3 is the starting point, which has to do with the with the the law and the fact it's the purpose for the law and how it functioned uh, in our life, he goes on to say, "Have you have you suffered so many things in vain? Indeed, um, 
Was it in vain? In other words, they, they've had adversity and opposition because they became Christians, and if you're just going to opt for the law, then you went through all of that for no reason whatsoever. He says in verse 5, Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you, who's that? That's the Father sent the Spirit. So did Jesus sent the Spirit. He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, did he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? If it's the works of the law, then how you grow up as a Christian is really different. If it's by faith, it's different from anything that's preceded in history. You can understand why they might have been a little confused. We haven't done it this way before. Since Adam fell, we haven't done it this way before. It's a new way. It's a new dispensation. For the first time in history, sin's been paid for. He says, therefore, he says, the comparison is one familiar to you as you've sat in this class in Romans for long. Just as Abraham, quote, believed God and it was accounted or imputed to him for righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis 15.6. And Genesis 15.6, as we've studied in the past, simply refers back to uh, Abram's original trust in God for salvation. He simply believed the what? The promise of God. And God imputed the righteousness of Christ to him on the basis of faith alone. So that's a quote from Genesis 15:6. So Abraham becomes foundational here. So Abraham's the first Jew. He is the head of the Jewish race. And he becomes the covenant partner with God in what is known as the Abrahamic covenant. That God said, through you, Abraham, I will... I will, I will bless all nations. That's the promise. Now, I want you to remember that because we're going to hear this word promise about six or seven more times before we finish this chapter. And it all relates to inheriting the promise of Abraham. Now, here's the issue. Do you or do we as Gentiles have an inheritance as physical descendants from Abraham? No. Because we're not physical descendants from Abraham. But we are heirs of the promise in this passage. How do we become heirs of the promise? Because what Paul says is the promise was given to Abraham and his seed. And then he says, and the fact that the word seed is in the singular means that it's referring to Jesus. And when we enter into Christ, how does that happen? Baptism by the Holy Spirit. We become heirs of the promise to Abraham, not by our physical relation to Abraham, but by our spiritual relation through our position in Christ. And he's going to end this chapter talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. God has a plan that it, it's consistent in every one of these books. Isn't it, it just incredible how it all comes together? But if we don't immerse ourselves in the Scripture, then it, it doesn't show up. This was one of the things that Elliot brought up today, which I, which I thought was very insightful, just adding a few, few little things together. He said, I'm talking about this section in Galatians 3. He says, in the, in the Gospels, I thought this was very insightful. In the Gospel, the Lord applies promises from the law to himself, but not to the disciples. I went, wow, that's good. That's what teaching a Dallas seminary for 50 years will get you. Um, you see things. He says, now Paul in Galatians 3, 6 to 29, illustrates how two different promises can be applied to believers, whether Jew or Gentile. The promises belong to Israel, Romans 9.4, right? Romans 9, Paul says the promises and covenants belong to Israel. They don't belong to the Gentiles. So how do we get them? That's the issue. The promises belong to Israel because they are addressed to Israel in Genesis, but they are applied through and in the Israelite, the seed through Jesus Christ. Elliot went on to say, the first is a series of promises addressed historically to Abraham in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. One is a promise to bless Abraham, and a second is a promise to bless Gentiles through Abraham. 
He says, quote, now the script from Galatians 3.8, so look at Galatians 3.8, and the scripture uh, foreseeing that God would justify, and that's it placed in kind of a subjunctive mood in the New King James, and and also, in, I, I'm not sure which translation Elliot quoted in here, but it's put in a subjunctive too, but it's in the indicative mood in the Greek which means God justifies. It's a present active indicative. God, it's, so it should, I think it should be translated, catches the force better. The scripture foreseeing that God justifies the Gentiles by faith. See, it's that continuous action. God justifies the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. Now, did he tell Abraham Jesus, the son of Mary, Jesus of Nazareth, is going to be crucified on a cross on a hill called Golgotha outside of Jerusalem that's right on Moriah where you were going to, where you, later on you're going to sacrifice Isaac. And by believing in that substitutionary death of Christ on the cross alone, you can have eternal life. Did he say, tell that to Abraham? No. He didn't give but, but what Abraham understood was that man's got a basic problem because he's a sinner. And God and only God can solve that problem, and I have to trust him through his promise. More details will be added later. Stay tuned. Film at 11. But for right now, he understood. And what was the good news that came to Abraham in the context of Genesis 12? Just think about it. Through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. That was the good news. I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. That's the good news. That's what gospel means is good news. That was the good news. So Eliot writes, The application involves three things to note. First, Paul noted that Abraham believed God and was blessed as his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Second, the promise extends to all nations through you, Genesis 12.3. The ambiguity or the ambiguity of through you at least means through Abraham. But those blessed directly through Abraham were limited. He was about maybe 70 years old at the time of Genesis 12, and he lived about 100 more years. So there were just a finite number of people he could personally bless. That's what he's saying there. Isaac was blessed through Abraham's faith, Genesis 22, 1 to 19. And those who read about Abraham's case and followed his faith are blessed as Abraham's son, Galatians 3, 7, which reads, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Well, he then says, Third, it is clear that all nations were not influenced directly through Abraham. That awaited Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ, who would ultimately provide redemption which is the basis through which blessings are available to the Gentiles. While Christ is the basis for blessing all nations, ultimately Israel will also be the messenger through whom all nations will hear Revelation 7, 3 and 14, 4 and 6, which refers to the 144,000. 144, so let's look at what the text says. Verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify or would declare the Gentiles to be just before God, proclaim the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all nations shall be blessed. That's the gospel as it's stated in the context. That's the gospel, the good news that Abraham understood. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. That would be Jew and Gentile. Verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. That is, those who think they get righteousness through the law, they're under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That's a quote from, Je uh, from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. But then Paul says, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. And then he's going to quote from Habakkuk 2.4, just as Paul did at the beginning of Romans. He says, for the scripture says the just shall live by faith, not by the law. To live by faith, that deals with, with post-salvation spiritual growth. 
that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is clear, and he quotes Old Testament scripture to, to, to demonstrate that. And then he says, but Christ, verse 13, Christ has redeemed us, he's purchased us, he's bought us, so that we're no longer in the slave market of sin under the curse of the law. How did he redeem us? By becoming a curse for us. And again, he quotes from the Old Testament and here from uh, Deuteronomy 21.33, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. See, what we learn here is freedom isn't free. Somebody has to pay. Always. There's no such thing as a free lunch. When the federal government gives money to anybody, it has to take that from somebody who worked for it and somebody who earned it. Somebody always has to pay. There's no free lunch. There's no free money. The government can't just sit up there and print money because they're in charge of the treasury. Hello, Mr. Bernanke. There's got to be some value there. Verse 14, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the laws. In verse 13, he's becoming a curse for us. That the blessing of Abraham, so the purpose for Jesus becoming a curse for us on the cross is for the purpose of the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. Which Gentiles? Where are they? What does it say? The Gentiles where? In Christ Jesus. Nobody got in Christ Jesus before the day of Pentecost, A.D. 33. They just didn't. It only comes when you're baptized by means of the Holy Spirit, identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and placed in Christ. The blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might, who's we? Hmm? us, church-age believers, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I don't recall the Spirit being mentioned in Genesis 12, but it's the blessing by Abraham. It's one of the blessings that we get through through Abraham, but not because we're in Abraham, but because we're in Christ. So we receive that promise because we're in Christ, not because we're physically related to Abraham. Verse 15, brethren, I speak in in the manner of men, that is, I'm telling you this in terms of human language, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. In other words, he's saying when you enter a contract with somebody else, that seal, when the, when the contract signed, when you sign your contract for your credit card, your mortgage, whatever it is, you can't go in and change it. Now, to Abraham and his seed, who's the seed? Now, to Abraham and his seed, singular, were the promises made. He does not say, and to seed. See, this is one of those verses to emphasize uh, verbal plenary inspiration. Inspiration extends down to the very letters, the endings, plural versus singular. That it's no, he's, he's making a doctrinal point, a major doctrinal point, on the fact that the word seed in Genesis is singular, not plural. That's inerrancy extends to the minutia. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say in his seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, which is Christ. So the promises made to Abraham and to his seed, Jesus. So we participate in the blessing not because of our relation to Abraham, but because we're in Jesus, the seed. He says, and this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later. See, all these promises are made to Abraham out of grace. Law doesn't come along for another 430 years. So how can Abraham's salvation or the promises made to him have anything to do with the law? It, It precedes the law by four and a half centuries. The law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. Interesting. The Abrahamic covenant is confirmed by God in Christ. That it should make the promise of no effect. So the covenant that comes later can't nullify the earlier covenant. It's still in effect. It's an eternal covenant. 
And then Paul says, for if the inheritance comes from the law or derives from the law, it's no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. He said the inheritance would come by promise. Verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgression. Notice he doesn't say it was added to get you into heaven. It was added to make you spiritually mature. It was added because you were dirty, lousy, or rotten, con- uh, you know, corrupt sinners, and you needed the law to control your sin and to make it clear to you that you couldn't be perfect. It was added because of sin until the seed should come. That is, and the seed is Christ. Until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was, and appointed through an, through, and it was appointed that his law was appointed by the hand, uh, by, through the angels, by the hand of a mediator. Now, Exodus 20 tells you nothing about angels being up there on Mount Sinai, but this passage does. Now, a mediator, he goes on to say, does not mediate for one only, for God is one. Is the law then against the promise of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life. In other words, if life could come through law, it could have come through the Mosaic law. But it can't come through law. It's impossible. If law given could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The promise comes to us by faith. And that promise is the promise of blessing through Abraham, which relates to the inheritance. We don't get it. It's not a physical inheritance for us because we're not related to the physical seed. It's a spiritual inheritance. And he says, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor. The Greek is a pedagogue. A pedagogue was a slave hired to train the young child until he reached maturity at age 13 or 14 in Greek culture, and then he was to be treated like an adult. In the Jewish culture, it was at 13, he became bar mitzvah and a child of the covenant. And then he had to be treated, mama couldn't scold him anymore like a boy. He had to be treated like an adult. He could not be disciplined the same way that, as an adult that he could as a child. But as an adolescent, if he mouthed off to his mother too much, they could take him out in the square and stone him. But So the law is compared to that temporary period before maturity. But after faith has come, the tutor function no longer exists. The function of the law no longer exists. And then Paul says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put, uh, baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. But that inheritance doesn't come by physical relation to Abraham, but by being spiritually placed in Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is what verse 28 is talking, 27, 28 is talking about. And that takes us right back to Colossians 3.11. I mean, 2.11 and Romans 6, 1 through 4, the foundation for the spiritual life. And then Paul goes on to talk about other things in chapter 4 and chapter 5, but chapter 3 is what tells us about the believer's relationship to the law. Now, next time, we're going to come back and look at the next. I'm going through key passages related to the Christian and the law. We looked at... We looked at um, uh, Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council. We looked at Galatians chapter 3. Next week we'll look at Galatians 5.18 and 6.14, connect those together. And we'll probably, since that's only two verses, have time to hit the last part, which takes us to Hebrews 7, 11, and 12. So we'll, we'll hit that next time. But this is fantastic stuff because it, it, it leads up to that great statement that Paul gives in Galatians 5.1 that, This is a foundation of our freedom in Christ. Not freedom to do whatever we want to do, but now we, because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the death of the tyranny of the sin nature, we have what nobody else in history had, and that is the freedom to live apart from the sin nature and to truly serve God. That's the point of freedom. 
Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to look at these things and to see how how Scripture just again and again fits so perfectly together, one section reinforcing and reiterating what's said in another section, each one adding fascinating new details for us that we can understand that, that the dimensions of your love and our faith in Christ and all that you have given us in Christ that we might be uh, truly free from the power of the sin nature and we might live walking by the Spirit in freedom from the control of the sin nature to serve you. And we pray that as we study these things that it wouldn't just be an interesting academic study but one that truly impacts how we think about each decision we make every day, the activities we're involved in, the people we get involved with, the, everything that we do because it should be done to honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.